welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn to Acts uh, chapter 15. We're going to look at the the, uh, the most of that chapter this morning, uh, particularly verses 1 through 11. Uh, this past Friday night, um, I had a very uh, nostalgic dinner. I had one of the best mufaladas in the city on West Metairie Avenue. Do you know who what I'm talking about? The come back in. Has anybody ever been to come back in? It's a neighborhood restaurant, and, and the moment that you walk in to come back in, it's almost like you, you step back in, into time. It, it's almost like it, the menu hasn't been touched and the people haven't been touched in 50 or 60 years, and it's quite a comforting thing. When you walk in the door, that particular neighborhood joint says something. It says something. It, it says something about uh, the culture of suburban New Orleans that often seems to be fading away, but, but there in that little neighborhood joint on West Metairie, that little suburban joint, uh, you see a picture of what early New Orleans suburban life looked like. You look around at the people and how they carry themselves and, and how they dress, and, and you see all of the, the plates coming out of the window, and And for me, being from here, it's a wonderful snapshot of New Orleans culture and the plates and the people say anything. I I would imagine, I told my wife this, if you went around to all of those tables where people were sitting, you would probably probably find plenty of people who uh, immigrated to the suburbs from the Irish Channel or Gentilly and moved out that way in the early 1950s. Or 60. I would guarantee if you sat down at some of those tables that uh, those people would take you in. And if you didn't feel good about yourself, you would probably feel pretty good about yourself after having an interaction with uh, those folks that were there that night. You could see it on their faces. You could see the tables being put, pulled together so that more people could sit around, so that families could enjoy a meal together, enjoy some shrimp and a poor boy and some red beans and rice and all of the good things that we enjoy. That restaurant, if you walk into it today, it says something. It says something just by walking into that place. So it had me thinking with Acts chapter 15 on my mind. I wonder, what does, what, what does your life say if people were to walk in your house? What, what does Riverside say? When people walk in here on a Sunday morning or people walk into our homes or uh, walk into the table that we're sitting at in the coffee shop or wherever it might be, I, I wonder what our, what, what our culture is. Uh, because that says a lot about us. Just as Come Back In has that culture that seems untouched and it's, a, it's like a big, big hug, I, I wonder what culture our, our church has. The, the, the truth is that every church says something. Yes, we say something about what we believe, and we have to get that right, absolutely. We must say what we believe and be clear about that, absolutely. We say something from what we preach, but we also say something with, with who we are, how our beliefs affect who we are. Are we just gospel preachers, or do we have a gospel culture? What are we saying? That's a big question I want us to be thinking about this morning. What is our culture as a church? What is our culture as a people? The first thing that I want you to, to, want to see this morning is that the church of Antioch had a culture. 
That's the church that we, we, we find ourselves in, the church at Antioch. So point number one is the culture of Antioch. And let's remember the culture of Antioch. We, we read it that uh, they were people who loved one another, that they sent relief to people who are in need. They were a diverse church, we find out. Uh, it's a place that was experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a, it was a place that in Acts chapter 11, the, the church in Jerusalem was, uh, had some questions. Because the Spirit had fallen upon the Gentiles, and we see the gospel moving forward in Antioch, and they're caring for one another, and, and, and God is working in their midst. And some people in Jerusalem have a question, has, has this really happened? Have they really been able to receive the gospel? And so they send Barnabas down to Antioch to see what was going on. Barnabas, the encourager. Barnabas, you go see and tell us what was happening. And the Bible says in Acts eleven twenty three that when he went down to Antioch, what he saw, what he saw when he walked into that city, into that church, into that place, what he saw was the grace of God. Acts eleven twenty three. You can underline that. Barnabas went in to check out, and what he saw was a people who preached the grace of Jesus Christ, and what he saw was a culture of grace. He walked in, and he saw the grace of God. They knew grace. They were saved by grace. Every one of them wanted others to experience the grace of God. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Church Before the Watching World, said something like this. I think it's a good picture of the church of Antioch. This is the culture of the church of Antioch we're still talking about. He said, Francis Schaeffer says this, he says, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church. Remember, the church was booming and growing at this time. One cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact, fact that they practiced two things, he says, simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church. A community which the world could see. And by the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously, he says, for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. He goes on to say, our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. That's the culture of Antioch. That when Barnabas goes down in Acts chapter 11, he sees the grace of God. Yes, it's not just a preaching point. It is who they are. Just as come back in is not just serving muffaladas and hot plates. That's who they are to the core. And it's a wonderful thing to experience. That's the culture of Antioch. The second thing that I want you to see this morning, that's the culture of Antioch. The controversy that arises in Antioch. In this church where the grace of God was so evident, a threat came in. And perhaps this is one of the threats that's hardest to spot at times because it comes in with religious pretense. It comes in probably with good motives and it's clothed in religion and probably had a bit of good intentions, I would imagine. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we read about, you know, the... Paul and Barnabas, they had returned to Antioch. They're celebrating how God's opening the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remain in Antioch in chapter 15, verse 1. Follow along with me. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, 
listen to this. So here's the controversy in Antioch. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, maybe you want to underline this, you cannot be saved. Unless you keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. They go on to say in chapter 15, verse 5, that some of the Pharisees rose up once a council happens, that even it is necessary to do this and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Did did, did you hear that? How could you not hear that? That the controversy that is arising, yes, we understand the grace of God is going to this. We understand Barnabas went down and he saw the grace of God among. We understand all that, but they want the people in Antioch to know that they believe that you cannot be saved apart from keeping the law in this way. That circumcision is necessary for salvation. That there is something other than grace by which you must be saved. That should send red flags, out, red flags out for us even today. You see, circumcision was an identifi- identifying mark of the covenantal community. It was a physical mark that sep- in the Old Testament law that separated the Israelites from the Gentiles. But that's all it was. It was a physical sign, a marking, and a cleansing that was supposed to mark the marking and the cleansing of the heart. And and so let's jump to a conclusion for a minute just to push the ball down the road and then we'll rewind and walk back through. So let's jump to conclusions for the minute. The, The Bible ties today the initiating mark of the now covenantal community as as baptism. But baptism saves, the Bible says, not as a physical washing, right? But baptism saves, Peter goes on to say. Peter's involved in this council, by the way. Peter goes on to say, baptism doesn't save you because you walk through the waters or because you were baptized physically, but baptism saves as an appeal to God. This is why we believe in believers' baptism, because what's going on in those waters is that we have made an appeal to God in our hearts, and we have an outward sign of an inward reality of what God has done in our hearts. And that's what marks us off, not so much the physical washing, but the owner reality, someone making appeal to God through faith. And so these Pharisees were saying that you cannot be marked or identified without the physical marking. The Pharisees were saying, no, you can't be fully part of this covenantal community unless you keep the law of Moses. It is necessary to do this. Grace was not enough. So you can imagine the controversy that springs. Among a people of grace... This causes no small dissension and debate. Do you see it? And after Paul and Barnabas, verse 2, had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So you see it. There's the culture of Antioch. The controversy that arises in Antioch is grace enough. Is it grace alone for salvation or is there something more? Must they keep the law of Moses, and this can creep into our churches even today, where we start saying, Yes, we understand that you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you really can't fully be committed, uh, included into the covenant community until you do whatever. The culture of Antioch, the controversy in Antioch. The third thing that we see in this passage is the, the council at 
Jerusalem. You see, I'm being a good preacher this morning. I have all the C's going on, so keep following along with me. We have the culture of grace. We have the controversy in Antioch. Now we have the, the council at Jerusalem. This was such a serious matter that they, they sent Paul and Barnabas and said, you go up to Jerusalem and some of the others and talk to the apostles and talk to the elders and see what they have to say about what's going on here in Antioch. I don't know about you, uh, but I've been to church councils uh, before. I spent some time at a church council this week, and they can be quite a, a circus, to say the least. So how was this question decided. They go up to Jerusalem, they bring it before the church, and they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria. All the way, they're rejoicing of what God has done. They come to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders. They declared all that God had done. No matter where they were going, they were telling what God had done. How awesome is that? But some believers, verse 5, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them. So the council begins. Paul and Barnabas goes around. Grace is enough. Pharisees say, nope, you must do this in order to be truly saved. Verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So they bring it before the whole church. And we start to see this church leadership, apostles and elders, they get together and let's decide this matter. Let's consider this matter together. So at this council in Jerusalem, the leaders come together. Let's decide and see what's going on. And Peter stood up and said to them, this is verse 7, I'd love you to follow along with me. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed, remember what's in mind, circumcision, this cleansing, this marking, this washing. They have cleansed their hearts, not by a physical sign, but by faith. And so, so, so walk through this council with me, how this is walking down. First, in this council, they consider God's revealed plan. Peter says, do you remember, he's talking about Acts chapter 10, about 10 years earlier. Do you remember how God in a vision spoke to me and said, go to the Gentiles, go to Cornelius and preach the gospel? And, and Peter had a hard time understanding it. He thought the Gentiles, when he thought Gentile and Gentile ter- territory, he thought unclean. And God said, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And God made it clear to Peter that the gospel was going to the Gentiles in power. And Peter says to the Jerusalem council, do you remember that? And we all agreed upon that, that the gospel was going to the Gentiles. So consider what God has revealed to them. Now we believe the revelation of God is, is closed in the canon of scripture. So I'm not saying have some sort of special revelation and go on. Well, how's God revealed to them? He's revealed himself in scripture. This is how God has showed himself to us. So they start there. And then he goes on to say, not only consider what God has revealed, but consider what God has done. Consider how we've seen God work. He sent the same Holy Spirit just as he did to us. We've seen the grace of God manifest among them. Haven't you seen that? Haven't you seen how he he cleansed them, not by walking through the law of Moses, but by faith. We are saved by faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are washed in the pouring out of the Spirit, which is now signified in baptism, not circumcision. 
The Lord is marking off his people by grace alone, sealing them through the Spirit. By the way, Ezekiel couples together the pouring out of Spirit and the washing of water, so likely that's in mind. They've been washed, not with this physical sign. They've been washed with the Holy Spirit. Praise God, don't you see this among the Gentiles? So why are we doing this? God has marked off his people by grace through faith. Just as we see in baptism, a physical washing, no, 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 but appeal to God through faith. Can you be marked and identified and cleansed without circumcision and keeping the law of Moses? The apostles and elders look at the Pharisees and say, yes. Yes, why are you doing this to them? So they consider what God has revealed to them. They consider what God has done. And then he asked them to consider the implications. If you put this law upon them, understand what you're doing. This is no light matter. He made no distinction between us and them and cleansed their heart by faith. Look at verse 10. As this council proceeds. Now, Peter's still speaking here. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? So consider what you're doing when you add something to grace. You're putting God to the test because God says he saves by grace alone. Consider what you're doing. God has poured his, his Holy Spirit out upon the Gentiles. And you're putting God to the test. What God has made clear, you're saying, time out, I'm not so sure God got it right. Surely they have to do something to earn salvation. Surely they have to do something to be fully included in the people of God. And, and, and Peter is saying, if you do that, you're putting God to the test. Consider what you're doing if you add to the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're putting God to the test. And not only that, that's what you're doing to God. And listen to what you're doing to other people. Follow along with me. Verse 10. And he says, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He looks at those Pharisees and says, you know good and well that you can't keep that law perfectly. You know good and well, as James would go on to say, if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken it all. And what you're doing to these Christians these Gentiles, is you're placing that yoke, that very yoke that Jesus came to bear for us by fulfilling the law for us. You're putting that back on them and asking them to do something that you yourselves were not able to do because here's what we know about the law. The law is good. It was given by God, but the law is weak. The law is good, but the law is weak because we in our own fleshly corruption cannot keep the law. We cannot earn salvation. That's not what the law was intended to do. It was intended to show us our need for Christ and, and to make us long for a redeemer and to realize that except for a sacrifice, we cannot go into the presence of the Lord. And now all of that has been fulfilled in Christ because he stood in our place as the perfect Passover lamb, finished all the types and shadows of the law because the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You're putting that yoke back on them that Jesus came to bear for us. The law cannot save the law does not have that kind of power. Your performance does not have that kind of power. Only the gospel has that power. 
And so what you are doing is you're taking the power of the gospel and you're looking at God and saying, I'm testing you and seeing if this is so. And then you're looking at people and the very thing that gives them power, you are weighing them down with a law that cannot give them power. So understand that as this council is deciding, here's the implications if you add to the gospel of grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what we know about the law. Let me say one more thing about the law. There's whole books, volumes of books written written on this. But what 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 the law demands, the gospel provides. And so why would we weigh them down with a heavy yoke instead of celebrating the burden-lifting, easy yoke of Jesus. And then he says, consider your own salvation. You know you couldn't keep the law. Look at verse 11. So consider your own salvation. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace. We're not saved in any other way, Jew or Gentile, all saved alike, that we will be saved through the grace. You might want to underline that, circle it, highlight it, through the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Your hope in life and death is Christ alone. Your hope in life and death is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile alike. So why are you putting that upon them? And then James, who is perhaps moderating this meeting, we won't say a whole lot about this, but he stands up and he quotes Amos and and what he is saying is consider the kingdom that now the true king, the true David has risen up and his kingdom is filling the world and just as he promised in the prophets that his kingdom includes Jews and Gentiles alike. Consider the kingdom. That God's kingdom is being restored and Gentiles are a part of it. And so that's what the council debates. And that's what they decide. It's grace in grace alone. You're saved by grace. I'm saved by Our only hope is grace, never the law. The law is weak. The law is good. The law is weak. And what the law demands, righteousness, God provides in Jesus Christ. And so the conclusion of the council, verse 19. You would think they would just say, I'm thinking if I'm there, I'm thinking the motion that's going to be made at this business meeting is someone's going to so move that the conversation is over, we're saved by grace alone, which it is. That's part of what's made. But it says, therefore, James says, it's my, it's my judgment. This is verse 19. So here's the conclusion of the council. Yes, we're saved by grace alone, but there's more. This is where we start to get into, so we have gospel doctrine is preserved, right? Got that. That we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. But, verse 20, this always perplexes me. But should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. It's weird. <laughs> and from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. <laughs> Have they added law to grace? You're saved by grace alone, but here's what you need to do. Abstain from things polluted by idols, four things, sexual immorality, things that have been strangled and from blood. What's so special about those things? I saw what you said, grace alone. Now you're adding this. First thing I want you to notice if you fast forward to verse 29, 
as they deliver this letter, they end up putting this in letter form and sending it down to the church in Antioch. It says, you'll do well to do these things. These are not necessary for salvation, but you will do well. So they're not putting these salvation stipulations upon their performance here. But it still seems like a hodgepodge. This conclusion still seems like a hodgepodge of things. Okay, we get kind of things polluted by idols, sexual immorality. That seems, the Bible gives a clear sexual ethic, right? Sexual relations are people who are born male, born female, who have taken on the covenant of marriage publicly. That's where God has designed that. That would solve a whole lot of problems if we maintained a biblical sexual ethic. So maybe we get that. So we're saved by grace, and then we obey God with our, with, with our lives. But what about these other things? Why are they putting these things together? I think what's going on here, it seems that the, the council's decision is reflecting a, a, a deep theological insight regarding the nature of the gospel and regarding the freedom from the law that the gospel brings. On, on one hand, the, the council is recognizing that Gentiles are saved by grace alone and not on the basis of works. That's clear. The doctrine is clear. They forbid placing the burden of the Mosaic law on the Gentiles as a requirement for salvation. That's clear. And on the other hand, because the council recognize that the Gentiles are not, are not saved by works, but as it were, we are saved, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in him. Not that our works contribute to our salvation, but our works display our salvation, that our hearts have truly been cleansed and transformed and circumcised by the gospel. Are you with me? And they require them to use their freedom as an opportunity to serve their Jewish neighbors. In, in other words, in Antioch, they, they would know that these things that these Gentiles are taking part in would cause their Jewish brothers and sisters to stumble. That the, that the doctrine of the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be undermined by the way that they cause their brothers and sisters to stumble. So not only have the doctrine right, have your community right. So you are to abstain from these things. It's likely that all of these things had to do with Gentile culture and Gentile worship that they were still seeking to leave behind. So he's not saying put these things, put those things behind. Some of these are outright sinful, and they cause your brothers to stumble. Maybe eating things that have been strangled or whatever is not necessarily sinful, but it's causing your brother to stumble. So in freedom, stop doing that. Sexual immorality is something that has been, been, been uh, clear in your culture and been accepted in your culture. Stop that because that's sinful. And so he's not saying that we're saved by grace so that sin can increase, but he's saving us from two significant errors with a relationship with law and gospel. They avoid legalism, which makes obedience to God a necessary condition for salvation, and they avoid antinomianism, which denies that obedience to God is necessary consequence for salvation. We are saved by good works and unto good works to glorify God and to have a culture of grace with our brothers. So, are our actions glorifying God? And secondly, a culture of grace? Are our actions taking into account maybe some weaknesses of our brothers and sisters so that we might not cause them to stumble? A culture of grace doesn't mean that anything goes. The Bible is clear on many things. 
the culture of grace means that our only hope is grace. And that means we do everything we can to live our lives by the power of grace. Grace is the power to save and the power to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. It's grace all the way down. It's not that you're saved by grace and then you're carried on by your own strength. It's grace is our power to save and the power to live. And we seek to display that grace in all that we do. That's the conclusion of the council. So they send correspondence. There's your final C. They send correspondence down to Antioch. And you can read that in verse 22 throughout. They, they summarize it in a letter. They send it down to Antioch. And, and the Bible says that they were encouraged. And they celebrated. They were strengthened. And they experienced peace among them. Let me give you a few thoughts for takeaway as we kind of draw this near. Hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has shown you some things as we walked along the way. But let me give you a few thoughts to conclude. Because at stake here is the truth of the gospel and the culture of the gospel. Number one, controversy must not stop the mission. And controversy must not stop the mission. We must have hard conversations and find biblical solutions to those conversations, uh, to, to, those, to those problems, um, to those controversies. The gospel was spreading like wildfire in Gentile territory. This could have caused the church to split. The Pharisees could push hard and start persecuting uh, other believers. This could have gone really poorly. But controversy must not stop the mission of the church. And sometimes well-intended measures over time will draw us away from grace. We must find biblical solutions to controversies. Something else, in non-essential matters and where peace is possible, like eating things strangled and blood and polluted by idols, where peace is possible, bring peace. The Bible says, as far as it depends on you, live with peace with one another. I've had phone calls that I've made before to say, hey, am I living at peace with this person? Because the Bible tells me, as far as it depends upon me, I need to live at peace. It might mean that you have to have one of those conversations. Grace doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean we overlook clear teaching of Scripture. But it does mean where there is liberty, we seek to bring peace if at all possible. In matters pertaining to the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, there is no compromise. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, period. We never compromise that. There is no compromising that. It was a Martin Luther that said, peace at possible, truth at all costs. Truth at all costs, peace if possible. And peace was possible here. Final thing, we must preserve the doctrine of grace, continue to glory in grace, but also show grace so that when a Barnabas walks in here, he goes to the church of Annie, to Riverside, and someone like Barnabas could walk into this place today and say, I saw the grace of God among those people, and it was a beautiful thing. Let's pray.